Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From amazing results, incredible matches, record audiences at events and on TV, equal pay agreements and new sponsorship and media deals, never before has there been so much focus on women's sport. We talk about it every week on our Anything But Footy podcast. More women represented Great Britain at the World Athletics Championships in Doha. Dina Asher-Smith and Katerina Johnson-Thompson, the latest in a long line of sporting superstars. But as we're witnessing the excitement on the field of play, what about off it? And behind the scenes, are there the opportunities for women now and down the track for our daughters to work in sport? This is Great British Bosses from Anything But Footy. I'm John. And we're in Milton Keynes at the headquarters of Table Tennis England. I'm Michael. And I'm Sarah Sutcliffe, the Chief Executive of Table Tennis England. So behind the scenes, Sarah, women in sport. Is there enough women in British sport? (laughs) <laughs> that's a that's a great question. I think we are seeing uh, an increased number of women now taking the opportunity to work in sport, and I think the more visible role models that there are, the more we'll we'll see it as a, as a pathway. I think within the sort of uh, staffing cohort we have here at Table Tennis England, I and mean, we're over fifty percent women, and within the senior leadership team, we're again we're four out of seven. And we have a, a chairman and a deputy chairman and myself who are all women. So I think table tennis is definitely punching above its weight. And what about generally, you know, you work with other national governing bodies. Um, you know, when you look at the FTSE numbers, what is there, seven CEOs in the FTSE 100 who are, who are female? There's more female leaders and CEOs in NGBs. But should there be more? Yeah, it could always be better. No doubt about it. Um, still, when when... My colleagues from a number of sports, we, we get together in the, the CEO forum uh, and there are a good handful of women in the room, but we are outnumbered, probably four to one. Um, so we, d- we would definitely all like to see more women reaching the top jobs in sport. 
And what would you say to people who are interested in a career, and whether that's you know people who are growing up or maybe thinking about changing career and, and working in in sport? Is it a, is it a welcoming place? It's not kind of locker room mentality anymore. I don't think anymore. I think there are certain jobs where it is uh, undoubtedly tougher. I think a lot of the the sort of athlete support roles, if you are in a very male dominated sport. Um, I think I think it is it is tougher, and there probably is still quite a lot of locker room banter, uh, and 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 also let's be honest that the working hours are not great, uh, especially if you're part of a an athlete support personnel. You are travelling the world a lot. That's not very conducive with family life. Um, but if you really want to do it, there, there's nothing that that can stop anyone trying to achieve what they want to achieve. And I think certainly within an office environment or a sports development role when you're out and about, you know, most of most of my female members of staff have, have families and it can therefore be a very flexible working career because, you, you know, if you're out supporting clubs and leagues in a development role, well, a lot of that work does actually take place in the evening. So actually there is a lot of flexibility on working hours. So, you know, it, it's a great place to work and I think sport is such a... It really makes your heart sing working in sport, without a doubt. I started off life as a lawyer, and this is much more exciting. You, know, you see the benefit of what you're doing day in, day out. You see how you can inspire girls to take up physical activity. Um, and you can see and understand how you can start to break down those barriers uh, where you know that girls start to drop out of sport. You know, I played a lot of sport in my life. You know what the challenges are, and you can see how you can help change those. And you mentioned there were challenges there and you hinted at a few. As a leading woman in sport, what have been some of the challenges you've faced? Have you found that there's been barriers put in your place at any point in your career? I wouldn't say that ever, there's ever been a barrier that I couldn't, couldn't break through, but I would definitely say throughout most of my career working in sport, I have certainly been outnumbered. Uh, whether it's around a, a senior leadership team, uh, room, whether it's around a board, whether I get invited to an awards dinner and you find you're the only female and nine men on a table. Yeah, you, you, there's definitely not parity in sport, um, but that's never bothered me and, and it doesn't bother my female counterparts in, in other sports. And, you know, we'd love to see parity, but, you know, like, it, like in every industry, you need people who are breaking down the, uh, they're not barriers, but people who are trailblazing along and then others will follow through. So important has the impact been in sport of, for example, the England netball team at the Commonwealth Games, the Lionesses reaching a semi-final of a World Cup, Dina Asher-Smith and Katerina Johnson-Thompson recently winning gold medals at the World Athletics Championships. How important are those big female role models? I mean, I think they are hugely important for inspiring uh, girls to take up sport, first and foremost. I think actually I look then to the sofa, I look to the, the, the commentators and seeing parity on the, on the commentary uh, sofas or in the case of actually watching the World Championships recently, often more women than men. For me, that then is actually providing greater inspiration for girls thinking about working in sport or, or what they might do. Talk about you before we come on to Table Tennis England. You mentioned you started off as, as a lawyer um, and at the British Olympic Association for, for 12 years. How yeah. was that? <laughs> oh, it was a fun. I mean, it was just the most fantastic place to be. When I left working in the city of London as a at a major international law firm, and I went in house to the British Olympic Association in early two thousand and one, it couldn't have been a bigger career change, and it absolutely is one I don't 
I, I look back as a real turning point. Um, what and what made changed. you do it? I, I'd, always, I'd always loved sport and I'd grown up, I grew up in New Zealand and sport had always been a huge part of my life. And I think I'd found myself uh, watching the Sydney Olympics and Paralympics. And of course, this was the day before we all had smartphones and, and everything and all the, all the content was there available for you to look at any time of the day. And so I, um, I snuck my TV into my bedroom and I found myself, of course, being Sydney, it's 12 hours away, found myself watching the TV throughout the night. And I'd always been fascinated by the Olympic Games. And it just so happened that shortly after, after the Sydney Olympics, I saw an advertisement for an in-house lawyer and I thought... Well, I might give that a go. <laughs> and I guess as well, arriving at the BOA in 2001, that was an organisation that was rapidly changing as well because they just had the first Olympics and Paralympics with lottery money. Things were really about to go supersonic for that organisation and we saw that up to Rio and we'll see it again in Tokyo. Yeah, on, on two fronts. Not only had the lottery money come into sport and therefore... Uh, we saw the step change from 36th in the medal table in Atlanta to 10th in the medal table four years later at Sydney, maintained 10th in the medal table in Athens, and then from there, the stratospheric jump up to third in, uh, in, in Beijing in 2008. And then, of course, the winter sports were starting to achieve better as well. But, of course, the bid for London 2012 was just kicking off. And I was one of the first 10 people, really, to ever work on the bid. When I first got involved, there was still an East London and a West London bid. Uh, and we were still really trying to bash down the doors of first the Mayor of London and then DCMS to uh, to even get people engaged in the bid. So it was a an organisation in, in rapid change and hugely exciting. If ever you want to work somewhere where, men, where momentum was gathering, that was the place to be in 2001 through to you know, the awarding of the London Games in 2005 was huge i didn't realize we had to thank you for it <laughs> not single-handedly <laughs> did you think i wouldn't possibly take all the credit but it was i mean it was fantastic just literally in a bunker room in in wandsworth and there up on two two different walls of a of a small office we had a west london bid and an east london bid and circles around wembley on one side and circles around stratford on the other side did you think at that point bearing in mind we'd had the whole pickets lock debacle where we were going to build a stadium for the athletics and then we weren't did you think at that point we could actually bid for the olympics be serious players with the ioc and win it i did because i was i was young and enthusiastic uh and and yeah rose tinted glasses i didn't see a problem at all um and i think we we pretty much got derailed by the war by the iraq war without a doubt it was really hard to get uh get across the um the agenda of, of number 10 and, and the Treasury, but we, we kept pushing through and we kept it. And I saw no reason why we couldn't. I mean, I was, I was passionate about it. And actually, it was really interesting. I could see you know, the drive from Ken Livingston, mostly because he could see that somebody else's money would help kickstart his regeneration project in the East, uh, and the late Dame Tessa Jowell, who was just like a terrier. She was not going to let this go. She was not going to let number 10 push this under the carpet without a proper debate. Uh, and those two people really deserve a huge amount of credit, um, as well as those that then sort of worked on, on the detail of the bid. Um, right up until when we went to Singapore for, for the decision, uh, I, I thought we could do it. I think I was probably in the camp that thought we might 
narrowly lose out to Paris that we would maybe maybe it would come down to Paris London and we would just move, lose out um, so it was great to turn the tables and we certainly had a huge party that night and again it was women in sport with Tessa Jow you mentioned obviously before Lord Co there was Barbara Cassani who yeah. was leading the bid again a, a fantastic moment if you like bringing that event to, to London and again women at the heart of it yeah, and, and I think if you look throughout the last 10 years, uh, we have had women in the top leadership positions within sport, whether it's been uh, various sports ministers, whether it's been uh, chief executives of UK Sport, um, Sport England, uh, you've, you, there's uh, Sport Scotland, at Sport Wales, all of them have had female chief executives and or chairs over the last, uh, the last decade. So there's certainly been the role models um, I think we would all love to see. We all know that there still is a gap between boys and girls playing sport and being physically active. And then we also know that there is still a big gap between the number of men and women who do take up these leadership positions and, and particularly looking at coaching. And just before we move on from London 2012, and John covered every kick, spit and press conference of it for, for years, more so than I did. I kind of just jumped in at the last minute and got involved. But how important was it, not just winning that bid, but delivering it and delivering it in such a way that the world sat up and took notice and suddenly Great Britain, suddenly London was a place where people wanted to bring major events, major sporting events? I think it was a game changer. Uh, and I think the, the lead in, once we were awarded the games, of course, the government uh, then started back bringing other major events to, to the country on, in preparation. But importantly, we have seen that ongoing commitment to major events and supporting sports to bring major events to this country, which for me hits so many, uh, so many key key areas uh, not least it does definitely help performance but it helps with inspiration it helps with with event volunteering which every sport needs day in day out and people do want to get involved in the major events but as long as they then and we do see a number then staying involved helping sports on a on a weekly basis which is is fantastic and it just provides a really good buzz you know let's be honest there is so much negativity in the world at the moment i was listening to radio for breakfast it's a the Today programme the other day and I just thought I'm not even sure I should get out of bed every <laughs> single story was negative if it wasn't Brexit it was the decline of the high street it was uh, the economy and then suddenly at the end there was a small little glimmer of hope because there was a positive story and it was about sport I think it was Dina Asher-Smith winning her gold medal and you know it, it is a galvanizing factor and we see it every time a major event comes around everybody gets a bit of a step and a spring in their step whether they're whether they are week in, week out followers of sport or not, major events, multi-sport events do bring uh, a smile to people's faces and, and Great Britain does a fantastic job of delivering results. So you left the BOA eventually and, and came straight here to Table Tennis England? I, d I took a little break. I decided I needed to leave at the end of 2012. I th it had been a fantastic journey, but I felt if I, if I stayed, I didn't have anything new to add to another Olympic cycle. And... In the, the two years leading up to London 2012, I'd identified that, well, I could stay being a sports lawyer, as I was, as the, the legal director at, at the BOA, but I sort of knew everybody doing the top sports law jobs in-house in the other sports. 
Uh, and I didn't really feel that was going to give me enough of a step change in what I want to do. So I really identified that staying involved in sports administration was what I, where I could see my career taking its next turn. Uh, and to do that, I really felt I, I needed to get under the skin of a governing body, a top to bottom governing body, understand the grassroots of the sport better than I did. Uh, I took about six months off because I, I had young children and, and London 2012 been pretty full on. Uh, and then I was lucky that uh, a position came free at what was called the ETTA, the English Table Tennis Association at the time, which, to be honest, was not in a great place. And Sport England had effectively put it on special measures, along with half a dozen other sports, uh, whereby our four-year funding award had been limited to a one-year award initially. Uh, with a requirement to really put in place quite a lot of governance changes. So I came on board initially on an interim basis for six months to see if we could kickstart those changes, and uh, I'm still here six years later. So I've got two questions on that. Firstly, how and do you become a CEO from being a lawyer? You take a leap of faith. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I was lucky because at the BOA, my job had become a lot broader than just being the legal director. I was also uh, in charge of the HR function, which had seen us obviously grow the BOA uh, hugely and then a managed downsizing afterwards. So it teaches you a lot about people management. But I'd also got a lot of, I had a lot of exposure to stakeholder work. So I'd been working closely with the mayor's office, with DCMS, uh, on, on legacy work. So my work had definitely gone a lot broader than being a lawyer. So much so that actually I thought I probably couldn't go back into being a lawyer because I'd become too far removed from the day-to-day practice. And then you said that needed some work, Table Tennis England. Um, I think the phrase is fit for purpose. So how do you... Or how did you kind of bring the team forward and bring everyone together and get it to the point where, you know, we now have Table Tennis England, that's the brand? Yeah, I mean, we, it was a difficult time for, I think, everybody involved in the sport. Uh, a lot of change was needed and, and change isn't easy. But really, within, we, had, we had to move and we had to move quite quickly. And within the first six months, we had uh, announced a, uh, a wholesale restructure of the staff uh, we had uh, started the job of appointing a fully competent board. So prior to that, it had been three sort of elected officials and then they had chosen a, a management team around them. So we, we went through the process of uh, advertising for independent board directors for the first time, as well as bringing on some other directors from within the sport. We had a wholesale so restructure of the staff. We announced a relocation from Hastings up here to Milton Keynes, uh, part of the aim to be close to Badminton England, who we now share an office with, because there's a lot of similarities in how the sports are structured, with similar sort of size, similar structure at the grassroots, similar demographic. So we thought we could learn uh, learn from being closely associated with each other. And uh, we, we rebranded from the ETTA to Table Tennis England. So there was a huge amount of, of change management over that first six to nine months. Um, and you know, huge credit to the sport for coming on that journey. Um, obviously, a number of people when we relocated had to leave their jobs, um, and a lot of those people had worked for the for the organisation for a long time. Uh, but change was what was needed. And I guess you mentioned some of the similarities with badminton, badminton and table tennis. Huge participation sport. So broadly, what is your remit? What is your structure? Because we obviously see Olympic and Paralympic and we see gold medals on the Gold Coast at the Commonwealth Games for the likes of Paul Drinkle. But what is what is your overall remit here at Table Tennis England? We could split it down really into probably four 
key areas. Um, you know, we are first and foremost fundamentally a membership body, and we have our, our members are those that play the sport week in week out. Our membership is based primarily uh, currently on league players, so we've got about twenty five thousand uh, active members at the moment. So we work on supporting the, the clubs and the leagues and a lot of the work we're doing at the moment is to try and get them to provide a better experience for their participants. Our sort of league membership is static. It's not growing, it's not really dropping off and it's been that way for five years and we know that there's a lot of work that can be done to perhaps adapt some of the leagues so that it's not the traditional you know, three men playing a team of three men and or women on a Tuesday night on one table that starts at 7.30 and finishes at 11 and therefore youngsters aren't getting involved and and less women are getting involved. So we know that by adapting some of these behaviours and having uh, more flexibility in trying to break down the the, the barriers that are preventing people from playing, um, we will get more people back into the sport. So we also work generally on on development. So we work in, in uh, schools and we have a number of uh, we've got a new women and girls action plan that we've launched to try and get more women and girls both playing officiating and uh, coaching we know that more female coaches does attract more women or more girls into playing a lot of girls especially at school age like to do a girls only class with a female coach so we know that these we have insight that tells us about these things so we're trying to roll out more we obviously have a talent pathway so we work with a number of clubs around the country to, to try and pull the most talented youngsters into a pathway. And we've now brought our first level of England squad coaching right down to the age of seven and eight. So we know to be competitive. It's an early specialisation sport. Uh, we need to be getting hold of the talented youngsters as early as the age of seven and eight if we have any chance of really um, trying to perform on the, on the world stage. Uh, And then alongside that, we also have a really, really active mass participation area, which I'm I'm really proud of. It's one that we've managed to really take forward over the last three or four years with a lot of support from Sport England. But that's where we are taking table tennis into the community rather than people having to come to a club. So we have our, our ping project, which is getting a lot of outdoor tables out. That is now also morphed into ping pong parlors where we are using, uh, underutilized or empty retail space in shopping centers and turning them into pop-up ping pong parlors. Uh, We also have a number of what we call ping in the community projects where we are taking table tennis into particularly the the harder to reach and deprived areas or trying to tackle things like adult isolation, uh, Muslim women, disability. So we've got a lot of mass participation work as well that we're doing outside of the traditional club and league structure. Now I notice you've got a table tennis table in your office which is fantastic but John has got the killer question for you here. (laughs) Uh, Is there any difference between table tennis and ping pong? No. (laughs) (laughs) Are you offended by the word ping pong? No not at all and if you go over if you if you're in the far east and let's be honest it's you know when I'm over in uh, China and Japan where where the sport is just has phenomenal amount of supporters uh, they often talk about it it's uh, horses for courses you talk obviously about prowess in in china and japan there's never been an olympic medal for great britain since 88 i think when when table tennis came into the games at the paralympics of course though there's been terrific success hasn't there yeah phenomenal and um uh, whilst we don't manage the power program on a day-to-day basis, it's managed uh, by British Power Table Tennis, which is, is a small, tight-knit performance program, and we work very closely with them. Um, they have about 16 players on, on their British uh, program. 
phenomenal success and the work ethic of uh, the team up in, in Sheffield is is great. I think we, you know, we wish we could have, have the same level of success in the able-bodied. I think it'll always be hard. Uh, the, the powerhouses in, in the Far East make it really, really tricky. But uh, I think the power program is going to continue to go from strength, strength to strength. What will it take potentially to to have a, a breakthrough, a, a, a British world champion or a British Olympic medalist? Is it is it something we we will see in the next generation potentially? I think you could. You never say never. I you know we we have in Liam Pitchford in particular at the moment, the highest ranked British player that there's been for decades. Uh, as recently as only a couple of months ago, he's ranked 12th in the world. And, and to be honest, anyone ranked 12th in the world can have a, a shot at a title. Um, especially when you get to the Olympics and actually China, for example, will be limited to having two men in the singles and Japan will only have two men in the singles. So at some point, someone's going to be going for that third medal. Um if we assume, which unfortunately we tend to, that China will take the gold and silver, it's anything's possible, you know. And, and when you've got the right focus, and if, as long as we can give our players all the support they have to get them in the right place, so that they can be the best that they can possibly be, um, they're all capable of beating top ten players. And if you're capable of doing it on any day, then anything can happen. You mentioned Liam and, and Paul Drinkle as well. I mean, they. They play in Germany, don't they? In 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 kind of a weekly league, is that is that kind of how it works? Yeah, the, the strongest leagues are definitely, uh, and and most British players have for again for decades based themselves in the European leagues. Um, Germany has a very strong league, Bundesliga. Um, a lot of our youngsters tend to start out in the Swedish leagues, uh, but Liam's made a breakthrough this year, and he's actually playing in the J League in the Japanese league, uh, and he's taken himself over there to put himself as as he sort of says, right in the fire. You know, if he's going to beat the Asians at this game, he's got to be prepared to go and play them week in, week out. And he's having some great successes over in the Japanese league. We would love to have a stronger domestic league than we've got, but that's not something that you can just fix on a short term. We we probably don't have a strong enough club structure yet to really build a very strong league. We do have the British League and, we, and the Premier Division is is good. It, without a doubt, and it, and it does attract some foreign players to come and play in it. Uh, but right now, it would not be giving our top men the right level of play that they need to be able to compete at the very top. Michael mentioned about the, the Paralympians. Um, how important is it for table tennis to have Will Bailey in the Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> peak it's time just Saturday night television? It is just brilliant. And first and foremost, it's brilliant for Will. Will is a, he's such a nice guy and he has worked so hard at everything he has done in his life. And we're seeing that, you know, when his dance partner says she's never worked with anyone who works so hard. And I think what it does is it really shows that especially if you do have a disability, whilst you can achieve at the very top, you've got to work that little bit harder than anybody else as well, just to get at the same level. Um, And it's fantastic for the sport. You know, over the years, we've had great names. We've had Des Douglas. We've had Matt Syed, who all give great exposure to the sport. But Will will become the real relevant table tennis player for this current generation. And, you know, hats off to him. Um, He's just such such a nice guy. You can't go through life without a hashtag. So I think yours is back, Bailey. <laughs> hashtag back, Bailey. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is it the kind of thing um, someone should be doing nine months out of a next Olympics and Paralympics? Or is, is the bigger picture just, just 
you know more worthy here than than an individual medal or success moving forward yeah i mean i think it's it's hard to tell and and you know it's not my call Seize the moment it's not my call um it's something that I'm sure Will and the performance director, Gora Shveka at uh, British Power Table Tennis, you know, re- reached an agreement on. I think, like anything, there are pros and cons. And I think so long as Will is able to manage the demands of both, uh, you know, his strictly training and making sure he's still doing the preparation he needs to do. I think, like everything, you know, in life, a little bit of change of scenery does people a world of good, so long as he doesn't get injured. Yeah, Um, a few quick fire questions to to, to finish off with. Firstly, for me, um, biggest achievement for you? Me personally, uh, I I, being part of the London 2012 uh, bid winning team. That was that was a moment where just shock went through my body and my knees buckled, and the the hugs of the team, everybody who was out there in Singapore, and it was just fantastic to be part of. A group of people across political divides, social divides, sporting divides who are all focused on delivering one thing, which was winning that bid, was phenomenal. I mentioned you've got a table in your office. Do you play? Are you any good? <laughs> I'm better than I was six years ago. Um, uh, we've got some great players in the office, so I always get a little bit of coaching tips, and I just play in, in, in the sort of social environment here in the office. Um, but I beat my, still beat my kids just about. To finish with, go back to how we started... What's your one bit of advice for someone who wants to do what you've done, Sarah? I think you follow whatever opportunities come your way. And uh, my my biggest bit of advice to anybody starting out in any career is don't assume where you'll be in 10 years' time. Keep your eyes open. Spot opportunities when they come. Be prepared to take them. Uh, be prepared to put yourself out there. Don't assume that opportunities will come your way. I think there's great opportunities for young uh, youngsters get involved in either volunteering or administration in clubs uh, in their, their sport, become qualified as a coach or an umpire and just get get involved and then you'll find out what you want to do and, and seize the opportunities. Well, Sarah Sutcliffe, Chief Executive of Table Tennis England, thank you for being prepared to speak <laughs> to great British bosses. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.